That Triathlon Show 319. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and first of all, I hope that your 2022 is off to a great start, and uh, hopefully this great science-packed interview about cycling and endurance sports can make it even better and more enjoyable. On today's episode, I interview Dr. Peter Leo, who is a sports scientist and cycling coach from Austria. As part of his PhD research, Peter did extensive work in profiling performance and physiological characteristics of under-23 cyclists. So in this interview, we discuss this work, as well as uh, a lot of the general aspects and practical advice and takeaways around power profiling and also using critical power. But before we get into the interview with Peter, big thanks to our sponsors, Roka. Roka produces exceptional quality triathlon wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, performance sunglasses, and prescription eyeglasses and sunglasses. If you want to go faster in the water or on the bike, a Roka wetsuit or trisuit might be for you. Or if you just want to have a more comfortable, functional and stylish pair of eyeglasses, then look to their range of eyewear. Today I want to highlight Roka's Sim shorts, which are neoprene shorts to add buoyancy in the pool. This has several benefits in that it allows you to train the specific body position of swimming in a wetsuit without having to actually bring the wetsuit to the pool. It allows you to learn and understand good body position if that's something you struggle with. And it can also help you add more swimming volume, in particular when your legs are tired and sinky from bike and run training. And it can also help you better work on other points for improvement in your stroke than just body position when the shorts take care of body position for you, for example, focusing on a particular aspect of your stroke mechanics. The sim shorts are brilliant quality shorts. They have great buoyancy and are extremely durable. I can highly recommend them. Visit roka.com forward slash TTS for 20% off your order. And thank you to Senate. The Senate Indoor Swim Trainer is a one-of-a-kind swim bench that helps you improve your technique, power and stamina. Improve your technique through an early catch, maximize your propulsion through a more powerful stroke, and stay consistent by doing swim workouts at home, even when you can't go to the pool. The Senate Swim Trainer is available in the UK, EU, and the US, with free shipping in both the UK and the US. It is very affordable, it's similar to a pair of running shoes, and best of all, the investment is completely risk-free. If you are not in love with the Senate Swim Trainer after two weeks of using it and using their free program, you can send it back and get a full refund. Learn more and get a 20% additional discount on your swim trainer on senateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Dr. Peter Leo. Welcome to that triathlon show, Peter. How are you doing this morning? Thanks, Michael, for the invitation. I'm I'm great, and uh, even greater to have a podcast with you this morning. Well, thank thank you so much uh, for that. Uh, I'm looking forward to it as well. Uh, you've recently defended your PhD thesis, so that's what we'll get into and and discuss. Uh, but but before getting into the details of that can you give us a general overview of yourself who you are what your background is in endurance sports and in in academia yeah thanks so yeah my name is peter leo i'm from austria uh the western part of austria in tyrol uh we had the world championship in 2018 in innsbruck so i'm not far away from innsbruck i actually uh, graduated from the university of innsbruck 
so this is why I, I also know Tour of the Alps from as a spectator earlier on with uh, Giro del Trentino. And uh, in 2007, there was um, in, in our valley, there was the there was a stage, a uh, final stage of the Giro d'Italia. So I was always a bit in the in the heart of the of the Alps. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm coming from triathlon. Uh, I used to be a competitive triathlete national level in Austria. I competed a bit in Germany, Italy. Uh, yeah, that's that's my sporting background. But uh, yeah, I'm more involved in, in in cycling, but also in triathlon as a coach, but also as an applied sports scientist. Great. And uh, to give an overview of the, your PhD work, can can you describe just at a, at a very high level what what you investigated? Yes, uh, due to my commitment uh, to an under-23 development team, I was always curious about the physiological and performance requirements of under-23 cyclists, as there was a quite big research deficit in, in this kind of area. There was some really good studies from junior cycling. Uh, of course, uh, other other groups like Tönt van Erb and Deo did a, did a tremendous job in, in, in professional cycling and also um, investigating those key performance indicators. But I realized at that time, and it was in late 2018, where I took up my PhD research, um, I realized that there was quite a big gap in, in the most important link between junior and uh, elite, which is under 23 level. So this was my dedication and also my motivation uh, to then um, go for a PhD. Uh, we entitled uh, Longitudinal Physiological and Performance uh, Characteristics in Under 23 Cyclists. Yeah, uh, and I linked all of the papers uh, included uh, in the show notes, so listeners can go and and have a look. Uh, there's uh, there's five papers that you've uh, basically included there, but uh, for today's interview, I thought we will focus on on three of them in particular, and or three topics uh, that are loosely based, well, quite quite tightly based around around three hundred papers. So first, let's discuss uh, power profiling because you did uh, power profiling in many of these studies of these under three cyclists, but at a general level, you also had a narrative review uh, where you discussed kind of the best practices of it and, and how to use it. So uh, let's start there. What is power profiling and, and what are the reasons for doing it? Yeah, um, I was always interested in, in power profiling as, a, as, a, as an athlete myself. I, I uh, worked for SRM uh, in, as an internship uh, all alongside Garth Fox um, in the French Alps for 2015-2015 alongside the Tour de France. Uh, where we analyzed performance data at that time. Uh, so this was my, my, my first contact with uh, really uh, yeah, using power output as an information for um, uh, explaining uh, endurance performance. And uh, yeah, due to my studies, I got more and more into power profiling. I got introduced into the critical power concept and different methods of assessing power profiling the, in, in, in the field. And it, it's basically, there are various ways of doing it. And, and, and this is also what I figured out during my PhD. Um, it, it, it's similar to another, a lot of other scientific debates. Um, it's about adding valuable information to, to, a, to a certain field. I don't say that, that this information, what we added, uh, is, is the right one to go with. But at, at least we tried to make it as clear as possible uh, in order to pr uh, provide a, a robust framework of also the underlying physiology and how it is linked to endurance performance. 
So, so what recommendations did you come up with in in the end uh, in terms of how to do power profiling and avoid some common pitfalls that you might uh, otherwise have? Yeah, I think the the most important uh, thing regarding power profiling is it there is a kind of kind of misconception going around that power profiling is just getting yeah connected a power meter, uh, uploading your activity to Strava or other platforms. And then uh, using that information, uh, what you get from a device uh, in order to produce your basically uh, power duration curve. And that's, that is not necessarily what uh, explains a lot of the physiological uh, information or basically the performance physiological information. Um, and this is why it's always important uh, to use a, a, some kind of formal uh, form. I, w- I always say formal testing. I would even maybe you can also say standardized testing so so rather than just going wild west uh in, in into your racing and, and training and, and try to retrieve everything what you can get out uh you should have a clear um yeah i think a clear concept of what you are approaching in terms of what is your what is your test what what are you going to test in the field what are you go, uh, what are you testing in the laboratory and and how can this then be um yeah explored uh, with field data using racing information, training information, and so on. So, so, so this is what we say. It's a, it's a multifaceted approach. Yeah, yeah, it it makes sense because something you explore in the paper is that, uh, especially when comparing the power uh, data from training versus racing, you see that. Well, the cyclists basically never reach their actual maximum power in training uh, that they can achieve in racing. So, so for example, during the during the preparatory phase where you don't have any races, if you just rely on the power duration curve from training data, you actually underestimate what power they are capable of doing. It's it's just the power duration curve it used that way is just a, a measure of what has been done, not what can be done. Exactly, totally agree, and and we have always a bit of a conflict because, as you as an en- engineer, you know, uh, I'm I'm not the guy who can program a lot. I'm not the guy who is really into modern uh, use of of technology. I I can hardly write a, a Python script or an R script. You know, I, I just manage to do my starts with R Studio. That's all I can do from a, from a machine learning programming side. So, but I'm very limited um, to to Excel, and um, there is a. a a quite quite a good mate of James uh, Jamie Pringle, uh, who who his philosophy I'm not sure if it's still, but uh, his philosophy is from an applied perspective the thing he cannot do in Excel just don't do it. <laughs> so uh, no, that's, a, that, that, that's actually not a bad <laughs> yeah, not, yeah. not a bad philosophy. <laughs> so, so we love Excel and uh, everything I can do with, with Excel is is great. No, but what I'm saying is. The, the conflict what you have, and, and I have been in a lot of discussion at conferences or, or you know, in, in other fields where, where you have engineers and, and also, uh, uh, yeah, guys coming from, or guys and girls, I would say, not only guys, uh, coming from more the, the engineering side, mathematical side, um, statistical and modeling side. They all say, yeah, I can, I can get this out. You know, I, I can get this model out and this model out. And then at the end, you're just talking about models, but you, you always forget it's, it, it's, it's human physiology, you know, and, and, and you need to find a way, uh, to backlink it, to backlink it with, okay, what's, what's, what are we looking at? What are, what are physiological responses to, to, to that power output? And that, that is often missed 
So at the end, you just have like arbitrary models, which don't explain necessarily what endurance performance is. And, and, and we really want to, to stress that back and say, Hey guys, um, it is important that we face, uh, due to we are working with humans, uh, the underlying physiology, because this, uh, needs to be explained by the end from, from power output data, at least to a certain, uh, to a certain extent. And, uh, this is why, uh, and it always amazes me. It amazes me. It amazed me since I was a bachelor student, but it's still, um, I'm, I'm still, and I'm not the only one for sure. Uh, it's the, the critical power model, which is, is still one of the best investigated through, since his, um, yeah, very huge history, uh, to, to use it as a bioenergetic model, especially in, in certain intensity domains. Yeah, yeah. So I think we'll, that, that's a nice segue into the critical power. And I guess we can lead from where you said there that you, you are a fan of using some sort of, some sort of standardized testing or formal testing. And uh, well, that is maybe the critical power test that you're talking about, because then you get several points on the power duration curve if you do that as a standardized practice. So so can you talk about that? Like, How, how would you recommend going about doing a critical power test and, and use that information? Yes. Uh, I mean, there have been other very uh, more famous um, auth- authors and, and researchers on your podcast who, who know more tremendous amount more than me regarding uh, the critical power concept, like Andy Jones, Mark Burnley, uh, Phil Skiba with a recent podcast. But what I think what, what, when, it's, when it's coming down to critical power testing, um, you have to be aware of with which kind of population are you doing it. Because I totally agree when you do it, and, and, and I experience it with, with sports students at the moment who are not really familiar to pacing and don't, don't have a lot of experience with going all out. You need to have at least, I would say, four to five prediction trials in order to use or uh, to reduce the error in your model. However, when you have like top-level endurance athletes, especially cyclists who, who really know how to go all out on, on a predefined duration, or they should, uh, you, you can reduce the, the number of predictions in order to still have an accurate model. And I think this was quite uh, well described by Medicordis Baber, uh, but also um, uh, Felipe uh, Maggioni uh, with the co-workers showed this, how, how it can be approached. So I don't want to go too much in the, into the model methodology um, of of uh, CP trials, but at the end, it's in, it's important that the that the trial selection is is uh, carefully considered. So all efforts need to be within the in, or should be within the severe intensity domain, where we can say basically it should theoretically, or when you go into a lab, they should achieve VO two max. So that's an absolutely important um, consideration. Um, and then you, you, you're automatically left with a quite limited time range. So we know we, we hardly can achieve, or there is, I think there is very little data, uh, who show that you can achieve, uh, VO2 max within less than two, two minutes. So, so this is where you automatically, automatically are at the lower end or, or the shorter end is two minutes and, and probably the longer end is 15 minutes. And that's, that gives you the duration where you should select uh, appropriate, uh, uh, yeah, length and, and there is some common sense that the shortest and the longest should at least have five to seven minutes, um, of, uh, yeah, time difference. 
Yeah. So, so what would, for example, when you've been working with cyclists in an applied setting, what sort of durations have you chosen just to give the listeners a, an example of that? Uh, I initially worked from two, five and 12, because this is also what we used in, in the, in my master laboratory with Alfred Nimmerrichter, who did a lot in the, in the, into the power profiling research as well. Um, and then I also went to uh, more Patina Carson's protocols and, and Louis Passfields from University of Kent with 3, 7, and 12. Um, so this has been basically those those uh, time ranges where I did it. I never did it with 50 minutes, to be fair. Uh, so the longest duration I used have been 12 minutes. Um, 10 minutes uh, for the longer might be too short. So it's better to go more to 12 to 15 minutes duration. And in the shorter one is uh, two to three minutes. I think that's the the that the way to go with the with the protocols. But at the end, I think it's it, it is important. It's rather important then you should not really switch a lot between your protocols. It's better to stick with one protocol where you have very good experience and where you know how you you find the right client for it. That's also one consideration because we are talking exclusively here about uh, uh, doing this test uh, on a standard uh, uh, climb uphill. Uh, between four to seven percent uh, on their road bikes, so we are not talking about because you do it quite differently in a lab. You you give a power output and you measure time. That's the difference. You do, you don't um, give and, and basically it's a time to task failure. Um, and outside you just give uh, a fixed time duration and then say okay go out go all out for that kind of duration. This was discussed in some papers, uh, basically with a, with. Um, with a, with a trained population, you, you come back to, I would even say on a practical level, to very similar results, unless you do it the same way. And I think that's the most important to stress, especially when you, when you work with athletes. Uh, you should not go one time in a lab, then you go outside. You can compare, of course, there is always, I think there is always a, it is always fair to compare things, especially in your explorative phase where you try to, what's, what's that, what's best working for me. But at the end, I think as, as, as soon as you have a concept, you should just follow that concept in order to really make it comparable over the periods. Yeah, yeah, and I think there's even uh, you. You can tell me, but I think there are some papers showing that the critical power changes a bit, even based on if you have slightly longer or shorter durations. So, yeah, as you said, once you have those durations that you like that are within those constraints, then then just stick with them and, and don't change them up because then the, the results will could be different even though the physiology hasn't really changed. Exactly. And the problem is also, you know, what, what people often um, don't acknowledge appropriately. We, we have a natural variation in CP. So CP is not a value of 300, for example, 318 watts. And with 390 watts, you are uh, in non-steady state. And with 370 watts, you are in steady state. That's not working. And I think that there have been great blocks also by Mark Burnley, showing that and, and also research recently with the critical torque that it's more like a phase transition. So basically you have day-to-day -day variation within your, your estimate and depending on time, depending on uh, also on, on motivation, I would say uh, you, this phase, this phase transition is, is basically on the upper or lower end of, of that range. And I think that's, that's important to consider that, that it's, and this is how physiologic, physiology works. It's, it's not from one point change to another. Uh, you see it in, in, in different phenomenons, physiological phenomenons that, um, that it's, it's more like a phase transition. So a gradual change into homeostasis or, or, or yeah, physiological responses. 
Yeah, no, I, I remember that blog from Mark Burnley and uh, I'll link to it in the show notes as well. It's a really good one. Um, so you mentioned there having a standardized climb that you work on. What other things do you need to consider in terms of the methods? For example, do you take into account things like uh, making sure you have the same weather uh, and and things like that? Are there any other things you know, on a practical level that people should consider when it comes to their testing protocol? Yes, indeed. I think uh, uh, choosing the right time to do it in the season, I think it's, it's very crucial because the, 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 athletes, the athlete needs to be definitely motivated, rested. So you, you would similarly recommend the same preparation as you would go into a laboratory to do an incremental exercise test or whatever, to volitional exhaustion. So the same is basically, same preparation is following for a critical power test. So you reduce volume two, three days before, you make some activation before, you use a standardized warm-up protocol with some priming, of course, in order to really get into it. Um, and, and ideally, we could do this always, and, and I did it with the cyclists, always in, in, in the February training camp because we are all together. We use two days of testing. Uh, the riders are motivated at that time because they, are, they, are, they really want to go into racing. They really want to go, go deep. So that, that's the ideal spot. Um, where I don't think it's, 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 it's a good idea to do it too early in the season where you just started training, for example, and they just need to build up because it's still all out. And it requires a lot of courage for the athlete just to, and the higher the performance level, the higher or the more difficult it is to really go all out for them. You know, don't don't get sub-maximal data in your estimate. So this is why reduce it more for a limited time, but reduce uh, um, use it then quite accurately. Um, and then we used it, of course, don't do it also in, in like, uh, yeah, outdoor conditions with two to three degrees. I think that's that there is no point. So we always went to Italy in February where we did it between 15 to 20 degrees. Of course, temperature plays a role and also the, the and other environmental conditions. There is a great paper by Nathan Townsend showing that uh, how CB, uh, CB reduction uh, basically uh, due to altitude progression. So I would say you should use normal uh, sea, level, uh, uh, sea level or just normal altitudes up to I would say seven eight hundred meters, uh, so you you won't get any any uh, yeah bias there in terms of of the uh, uh, env- environmental conditions. Mm. And uh, you mentioned they're doing the test over two days, so you were doing the the two shorter durations on the same day, and then the the longer one you did on on a separate day. Is that correct? Yes, it's correct. Um, I mean, for research, we randomized it to get out the bias or. Okay. You, uh, we just randomized it, but if I would just do it for, uh, for, for the training process, I would go for the shorter ones, uh, on the first day and the longer ones on the second day. But I, you can also say, and, and this is what we, we also did in, in, in one of our attempts, we let athletes choose individually. And it's quite interesting, um, how different type of athlete, different type of riders choose the, the effort trial order. So for example, the sprinters always want to do the shorter one first. And the longer one afterwards, and and TC contenders, for example, or more climber types, they want to do the longer first, and then they 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 went for the shorter ones. So that that was kind of interesting. It's just it has never been investigated in our in, in in our kind of 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 investigation, but it was just what I observed when when being there. And um, yeah, one one thing would. I think I think what I should add here is, especially for coaches, you need, really need to be aware of. The familiarization. So if, if an athlete has never did a critical power test, 
it's similar to a Wingate test that there is a learning effect. So I, I think at least they should try one, two CP tests um, in order to really make it accurate. Uh, and 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 there is a, some debate. I mean, there there's a lot of, of of data how it can be used for moderately trained uh, subjects or or athletes. I think you should really be aware of that. It has also its limitation in in a moderate moderately group of athletes and the, and the implications. So I think it really works great in a, in a well trained population, it, it, at least from my experience, especially in field. I think with with a moderately group of of students, and so it's better to do it in the laboratory. You just can control it better, and uh, yeah, also measure, for example, the responses. Uh, and I think you get away w- uh, with that uh, in, on an elite level. What do you think are the issues, the potential issues with a moderately trained population doing it in the field? <clears throat> Is it the, the pacing yeah. or going all out? I think it's just a pacing pattern. It's a it's a pacing balance outside, and I think in the laboratory you just can control it better uh, on their argometer with the resistance and so on. And then um, yeah, it's also you know there are a lot of uh, logistical considerations. You need to find a very quiet place when they go all out, go all out. Don't do it on a busy road. It's getting really can get really really dangerous. You know uh, when there's he- heavy traffic, they go all out in the severe domain. They have like problems controlling their bike. You know, uh, it's like you have a responsibility when you when you go out as a coach and do testing with it. It's always because in racing, okay, the road that the roads are closed and they are secured, but in testing, in in most cases, it's not. So I know exactly when we are going, uh, where to test because I know the quiet ro- uh, the roads and I figured it out before. And all, also on the fir- uh, on the day before, I go there and check if it's all good with the road and if. Is there, is there no construction work? Because if you're just going on the bottom of the climb and you realize, okay, 2K afterwards, there is a construction work in the road end. So, but yeah, not good choice for your test at that day. So, yeah, that, that, that needs to be, of course, for coaches, a lot of preparation also. Um, and, and I think that's, that's, that's the way to go, yeah. What do you think about athletes doing a CP test at home uh, indoors on their trainer, especially those living in colder climates? Um, do you because then you could, in theory, you could uh, fix the the power output and do it as uh, time to task failure as you described for the laboratory test. Uh, but I don't. I, I have. I'm not aware of people really doing that. I'm. I think that the people that that do critical power testing at home just choose a, a time duration yeah. and do it as a time trial. Yeah. But what what do, you, what do you think is the best way to go there if people are doing it at home indoors? Uh, you should definitely use the uh, the erg mode, probably. You know, to to have mm-hmm. just the resistance right. The problem is, you know, with which kind of of, of um, uh, smart trainer are you doing it? It could wa- might work with the Wahoo. I'm not sure if it works with other type of rollers. Um, when you do it in the lab, you either do it with a Lodi, a CRM argometer, or a Cyclos. You know, that's easier because they are really high end uh, scientific argometers with a great braking resistance. I think. And it's also a motivational thing, and 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 I think you you as a coach should consider: Can I uh, ex- expect this from an athlete doing indoors? Um, because otherwise, you know, you and I, it happened for me one time where I did the three minute all out test, and I, I just said I will never do it ever ever again because I rather do three trials uh, of CP outside, um, and I just don't want to do the three minute. I don't want to see that experience again. There is a video I posted recently on our Twitter thread with Mark Burnley 
showing me basically almost collapsing and and uh, falling off the the loading because I was. Oh, so, just, so you did you did the, you did a single trial? CD yeah, yeah, the three minute oh, okay. the three minute yeah, yeah. and, and, and yeah. guess this was like how. And just for just for listeners to explain here, the three minute rollout doesn't mean uh, a paced. Uh, time trial over three minutes it means that you start at a sprint and then you just keep every single pedal stroke is a maximum pedal stroke and you will gradually get yeah. less and less power and and then theoretically you your fit your end power is your critical power and then you can calculate the uh, the w prime as well as the uh, the work done above critical power um, so okay. so it's uh yeah it's, it's a brutal kind of uh positively paced uh, yeah. trial i have never done it personally but i imagine that it's it's horrible <laughs> yeah and uh, i was tempted to do to introduce it with the cycling team but at the end i just said no no i i for me it's 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 um i i just don't want to hurt the, the guys in that way because it could also be negatively attached then to me when when i come up again and, and they say oh fuck peter Leo is turning up I, I don't want him to have to be in the training camp because that means pain <laughs> And I don't, uh, I don't like that um, th- those cyclists associate me with with pain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all, all right. So, so one one other thing to go back to. You mentioned there that you always, uh, in terms of uh, fixing the time points that, uh, when you do it in the season, uh, doing one test in February during the training camp. When, when would you do? You, I know you you wrote in your thesis about doing recommending doing two tests per year. When would the second one be? Yeah, interestingly, what we saw and we said, okay, we might come away with one uh, one test per season. So basically, at the beginning of the or before the first race, and I think uh, that was the the way we approached. But then we we just find out that the, those measures um, that that the the errors what we got within the season with the power profiling information derived from racing does did not longer catch up basically with the preseason test because of course you have some changes in body mass throughout the season you get optimized rider get lighter often or heavier you don't know but ideally he gets lighter uh, due to the yeah more racing stress more training volume so he's losing two three kilos that could affect uh, absolute power output this is what we saw basically we saw an improvement in the relative power output throughout the season but we saw basically no change in the absolute power output uh, but th- it's still an, a, an improvement, I would say, in, in endurance performance because when you improve your power to mass ratio at, at the end, uh, it, it's always, uh, especially for for mountaineers racing, it's more advantage. So um, then we figured out, okay, we might need to add uh, a, a second half season test, and this is what you basically do after the first season and highlight. And, and in this case, it was always by the end of June, uh, early July. This was the point where we then say, okay, this this might good, this might be a, an appropriate time after some solid four six weeks build up again, do a test before you go into the second half of the season before to the Lavinia or whatever uh, what was following and on the racing schedule for those under twenty three cyclists. Mm, okay, perfect. And uh, one thing that we should discuss as well is uh, uh, what 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 is the reason for recommending critical power as opposed to for example uh, an mlss test or even a kind of a classic uh, 20 minute ftp test or or something like that why, why is critical power what you recommend i think it's important and, and this is also what we wrote in our review article um from a physiological perfe- perspective you get when you use critical power or mlss uh <laughs> I w- I'm, I'm very careful now because yesterday a paper came out from a group um debating again about what is the, the highest metabolic steady state. 
So I, I'm not adding any any discussion on that. But but what I'm just saying is okay, you could you you can use and I like the 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 way um, Mark Burnley um, demonstrated it. You can use CP as a top down approach in order to get the the, the border between the severe and, and heavy domain, and you can use MLSS uh, in order to get the the border from as a bottom up from heavy to severe. And I think this is this is. The way where you say, say, okay, you can balance those two measures. What I see basically, and I did uh, MLSS and CP testing with that group as well. Didn't have time to publish the data yet, but it seems like the higher level the athletes are, the closer CP and MLSS are uh, together within, I would say, 10 to 15 volts. The less people are trained, the higher I see the discrepancies between MLSS and and, uh, CP. So, this is the physiological perspective uh, for the phase transition between steady state and non-steady state exercise. And there is currently some real big debate, but it's it's science, that's normal. And on the other hand, with just one single test, for example, a 20-minute test, an eight-minute test, whatever duration you choose, or just MLSS, it's basically referenced, even MLSS is referenced to a 30-minute time to exhaustion, as you would say, or time trial. Um, it just gives you one point on a power duration curve. But, and, but we know a power duration curve is a second by second or whatever uh, in order to get that hyperbolic relationship of power output to time. You, you have to have multiple points. So this is, you, you cannot really use and use an engineer node. It's a, it's a single component. So this is why you need basically two parameter estimates and critical power allows you due to having at least two prediction tries, ideally two and more because the problem, and I think this was also discussed in a previous podcast about the degrees of freedom and, and, and st- how, how it is yeah. analyzed statistically um, regarding the measurement error, because only using only two trials gets you always a perfect linear fit and you cannot apply the hyperbolic nonlinear um, CP model. But at the end, what you're getting there is um, you get a worker both CP, so known as the W prime, the, the V and the apostrophe is basically just a contraction of work. Uh, and if, and, and, and the second component is critical power. And, and with this basically two parameter estimates, you can characterize at least for the int- uh, severe intensity domain, uh, with the two parameter model, you can, uh, use at least, um, exercise prescription or time to exhaustion within the uh, severe intensity domain for power output. So you can estimate a, a three-minute all-out, a five-minute all-out, an eight-minute all-out, a 10-minute all-out, a 50-minute all-out. I think that covers the whole range of the severe domain. Of course, this this uh, approach has its limitation. It um, Especially the two-parameter model underestimates short power output uh, production uh, and long power output sustainability. We know this with the mathematical problem um, of, of the CP estimate. But at the end, it just gives you a more consensus characterization of the of the yeah of the underlying uh, power duration relationship. Yeah, no, that makes makes total sense. And uh, you, you build on that power duration curve. So so even if you even if you for don't necessarily think that you need to use the kind of calculate. Okay, what is my predicted? time to exhaustion at a particular uh, power in the severe domain, you still get a sense of whether you are somebody who rapidly uh, degrades in power, but have a strong uh, kind of peak, or if you're somebody who is more of a, what you might call a diesel engine with, with a slower decay, but, but not as high of a peak. So, so even, even without 
using the the modeling aspects of critical power you can still have a, a profiling advantage in in that way yes um so so yeah and and just to go back to the discussion on mlss um well for for listeners that are not familiar just very briefly it's maximum lactate steady state so it's the point where you can have a more or less constant lactate and if you go at a higher power then your lactate starts uh, starts increasing so uh, yeah it yeah, says between the 10th and the 13th minute it, it should stay be below one millimole yeah yeah uh and mark burnley i think had had some great videos on his youtube channel absolutely all love out it. Physiology, so, all out physiology yeah. is really something what i would recommend to everyone yeah 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 it's good learning so course. definitely um but uh let's see here so so other than i i think i think that for cycling of course there's a severe intensity domain for road cycling and other disciplines as well is super important one thing that i would just say as a kind of limitation of critical power is that it's not necessarily super relevant for for example ironman athletes where something like lt1 might be the the better kind of physiology physiological marker of of performance so so that's that's another limitation to be aware of like what is your discipline is work in the severe intensity domain something that is a of key importance there and and if it is then the critical power model is is fantastic if it isn't then uh, it's definitely not bad but it's it has its limitations there absolutely uh, i i totally agree and it's also you know for short duration efforts maybe the the anaerobic power reserve is a, is a more appropriate way of scaling power output for track cycling for example um yeah. <clears throat> but this is i think this is very important to know it uh, each model's uh, limitation um and as you said it, it and at the end you know don't get obsessed with too much modeling. I think you still get a lot of information from the training process itself with 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 uh, yeah some kind of standardized interval uh, athlete feedback and so on. So I think we are always too much focused on that we want to too mu- uh, explain too much via model via a single model and we forgot other very important uh, components, especially in the long end regarding nutrition, regarding motivation, regarding environmental conditions and so on. Uh, equipment, for example. Um, so, so, so I think it's it's very it, you have to be aware of of how you can use it. But as long as as you acknowledge, uh, yeah, for everything the, the, its limitations, I think it's it's a, it's a fair way to go with it. Yeah, uh, that's that's great. Uh, so I want to move on to to the power changes in the under 23 cyclists but before we do that can can you just give a summary of what we talked about here with power profiling and critical power uh, a few practical tips that that you want the listeners to kind of remember and take away from from this part of the interview yes um so basically if you approach uh critical power testing in a season uh select the time at which you want to test critical power quite wisely it should be close to the start of the season i think this is what you get really accurate and very good um, measures. Um, use at least two to three prediction trials and be aware that there should be some pre-familiarization with all out uh, type of exercise. Uh, make sure that the recovery between those different uh, prediction trials within a session should be at least 30 minutes, ideally 30 to 40 minutes, in order to ensure adequate recovery between uh, those different all-out efforts. Uh, yeah, use a standardized climb, a safe climb uh, with less traffic, check before, um, and also consider, you know, outdoor conditions like cold, uh, 
humidity, uh, altitude, and so on. So I think that's that's the most important way. And then when you can analyze it, I mean, uh, as a can do it very simply with just plotting it on Excel with the linear uh, models or use some kind of very good uh, shiny apps from uh, Felipe Mattioni with the CP calculator, which basically gives you from the non-linear to the linear models, everything what you have, inclusively um, the standard errors and and all the statistical uh, fits, goodness of fit. Mm, I'm not familiar with those apps, so that, that would be cool too. It's a great app. Out. So Felipe Mattioni yeah. is really the, the guy who basically shares open knowledge and everything. So uh, I'm using even uh, his his kind of apps for like that uh, analysis. Now he got out a threshold app, which is very cool. And also, yeah, critical power calculator. Great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you want to do it in, in Excel, then... Uh, transforming transforming to a work time model then you can just do the the linear uh, regression and and use the, exactly. the slope and the intercept to get the critical power and and w prime so it's pretty simple to do uh with with a little mathematical uh transformations there uh but let's move on to discuss the power changes in the under 23 cyclists and uh, and what you also investigated there i should mention is you investigated the training characteristics and how they related <clears throat> to the changes in power over the season so, well, can you can you just give an overview of um, how how you went about doing these studies and and then what you what you found? Yeah, uh, this study was a follow up from our initial one where we just want, were investigating the power profiling changes within a season, and and then we say okay, but we did not really acknowledge what is training and what is racing. So then we moved on and say okay, we divided basically efforts in training and efforts in racing, and we're basically comparing both, uh, and then initially compared it to the CP test, which was uh, used as a standard measure and baseline measure at the beginning of the season. And what we found is for both absolute and relative power outputs, um, values achieved in training are, are lower than what it what is it achieved in racing, uh, which is kind of common sense because, as you said, initially, you don't produce real maximum efforts, even not in intervals. I would say there is also uh, a lot of evidence that interval uh, training prescription does not need to be necessarily, especially with high intensity training, to be all out, um, as you want to just achieve around uh, yeah time above ninety percent hard rate max. So that was of kind of some some logical phenomenon what we what we observed. But interestingly, what we then want to want to explain is we had we had three different periods. So we were dividing the season into an early season, which was from February when they start racing in, in, in kind of Easter spring trophy and so on, uh, to end of April, then from May to end of July, and then we had August until October. So that was our three-month season seasonal periods. And we were then speculating about how is training affected in one period to the change in the power profiling to the next. So basically, we were looking at the delta change between periods. And we also included, of course, the, the off-season, the pre-season. And interestingly, what we found is, especially in the early part of the season, when they start with uh, adding a lot of racing, the guys who even topped up the, their training alongside racing declined in the power profile. So in other words, when you don't manage the workload, especially in the early part of the season, uh, you have detrimental and decline in your power outputs, you know, for short duration, long duration. Uh, so that was quite interesting for, for us. And, and it's also, it could also uh, be said for the mid-season. So 
And this is where the most racing happens in, in under 23 cyclists. So the, the, the most busy season is, I would say, up to the baby tour, which is in the mid of June. And it all goes from February to mid of June with a lot of race days there. And, and even then coaches want to maintain training, but even if they maintain training too much, the, the residual fatigue kicks in and basically then they are not able to, to, to be as powerful as they should be. So that was one interesting observation. And then let, let's let, let's stop on that one because I think it's it's a really really uh, interesting one. Um, so what do you think is then uh, the solution to that, or the, uh, is there a, is is the reason for that basically that there's too much racing, and and if you do too much racing, then you simply can't maintain uh, a power your 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 peak yeah. performance for a long time or do you think that well maybe maybe if they just did less training while they're racing it could be possible to to maintain what, what if you speculate here what, yeah. what do you think yeah that that was also the the consideration what i what, what we have been discussing and because we are also working on the other side as a, as, a, as as coaches you know so for us it was quite informative so but we would definitely argue that that basically the that the race planning was going into the wrong direction for the build-up for the athlete. So basically, they just were uh, going to races week by week and just adding fatigue, 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 but not having the time to use that kind of stress, what you get from racing, in order to reinforce it into the training and build it up more stable. So that was the problem. And we observed this within the 2018 and 2019 season, working with the team. And 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 it's it's quite difficult from 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 a coach perspective because you have to follow that rhythm because at the end you know these are the important races where the rider needs to shine and where they need to accumulate the race kilometers and so on. But at the other hand, you want to to keep performance on the long term. So that's quite a very very tricky question to answer, and there is no one size fits all. So there are, there have been athletes who can accumulate it, but. The tendency, and I, I, I use it quite carefully, the tendency within that under-23 group was that just racing more is adding more fatigue, is adding more detrimental performance. And that's something where I think development is also key uh, because they team managers, teams in general, they just compare it too much with already professional cycling but they're still in their development and they still need time to develop year by year. And the problem is that it's it's the, the racing program in a lot of those under-23 development teams now is too aggressive, at least uh, before uh, COVID, I would say, is too aggressive starting into the season. And then basically you're just flattening out at the end. And this is what we saw in the late season. We saw a very big variance in, in our power profile between riders. Because the variance was just because athletes were going mad. So they could not produce anything at the end of the season. Some guys could maintain it or some guys still managed to improve it. So, so that were some, some really interesting observations. And what the guys who improved it, they just strictly um, followed a very polarized training intensity distribution. So guys accumulating more time below VQ1. So the first basically um, aerobic threshold and then accumulating or still having appropriate time above VT2, the, the anaerobic threshold, allowed them to, to maintain the power profile. Whereas athletes spending too much basically in, in, in those, in those gray zone, as it's often referred, they just plateaued or even declined. And, and for us, that's, that was really an informative 
way of 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 how basically um, a longitudinal seasonal approach of of training characteristics can influence at the end performance. Mm. Yeah, that's super interesting. And and was that when when you looked at the training testing distribution, was that only the training data, or was it training plus racing? No, data? we exactly we did not. In, uh, of course, we because we always had from our approach. Okay, racing is also adding stress. So it's it's in in this kind it's it's of course uh, some kind of load. So we did not differentiate between uh, stress from racing and stress from training. We just used mm. basically uh, that accumulation of 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 workloads that was achieved in that adequate period. So there was no difference between um, uh, racing and training in that kind of yeah. design. Then there could even be an effect of different roles within the team having an unfair disadvantage or advantage, but just based on what they're kind of uh, what what they're uh, told to do in for the team in in different races. Absolutely, I would guess so, <laughs> and this is necessarily what we what we see. Uh, although the roles are not so strong in under twenty three, it's still more like everyone works from an all rounder uh, approach. Mm. Uh, but it's still, you, you see definitely then as, as more mature they get, as more they have roles, of course, and also ambitions to, to, to shine on that race or on that race or just use that race for a buildup. And that, of course, uh, influenced that, that, that kind of change. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, go, go on. What, what other things, uh, did you take from, uh, from this study? What, what other findings did you have? <clears throat> yeah. I think, uh, the, the most important findings were, as I said, those, those changes in, 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 in training characteristics w w throughout the season, uh, using a more polarized approach. Uh, be careful about adding more training when you have a, already a very high racing, uh, density. Um, <clears throat> and also, um, Make sure your your athlete is aware of the long season, and that that ha that has always been a bit of a, of a problem, especially within an hour team. Everyone wants to shine at the beginning, but they still forgot that there are quite important racing in September. So, for example, including the European Championships, including the World Championships, and also you know the one day races like Picardy, Lombardia, and so on by the end of the season which is quite still important for a lot of wheelchair teams when they look for a spot who is doing well at the end of the season, because that tells you a lot of about how a rider is basically progressing and how also, yeah, I'm not using the password, but I just wanted to say how fatigue resistant he is already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, th I think that's a, a point that a lot of people, amateurs as well, can can take something from it. I definitely know that I personally have done a lot of mistakes with uh, uh, being maybe too fit or too peaked early on in the season and then maybe not being able to maintain that uh, later on in, in in a season and i actually remember when i when i read that part of your of your work i kind of <laughs> I had an aha moment that yeah i can i can kind of recognize myself in that <laughs> exactly uh, all right so yeah that, that's uh, th those are some really really interesting points one one follow-up as well that i have so so you found in terms of the the overall uh, power profile when and I think this was in the study where you didn't differentiate between racing and training, that the absolute power, as you already said, didn't really change through the season, uh, even though the relative power changed because they some cyclists lost a little bit of weight through the season. But do you think that this is um, is this is this also maybe a result of I don't know 
peaking too early or not really having a peak because of all the racing because you would think that maybe we're talking about under 23 cyclists you would kind of want to see an improvement ideally in the absolute power so so what 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 information or what conclusions would you draw from that uh and and how would it change things maybe to to see an increase in absolute power yeah that that, that's the thing and you know this 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 whole project because we we had different expectations we saw okay there is way more dynamic in the power profile enough i would say in a fresh power profile because this were all efforts achieved in a fresh state however we didn't and this is what led us to basically that 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 um yeah tour of the alps project where we were looking into uh yeah the power profile after accumulated workloads, where we find a lot of answers then for for that change. All right. So, so can you can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, um, we had that unique opportunity with Tour of the Alps, which is a, a two point pro racing category uh, known before as Giro del Trentino, which using a lot of Vuelta teams as the build up uh, for the Giro d'Italia, which is basically one week after. Um, so teams like Ineos, uh, Astana, Bora Hansko, uh, Ajudesir, Reftishi, and all the World Tour teams uh, come to the big dance. And for our team, um, as it's a Tyrone team and Tyrone is the sponsor of, of that race uh, with the Origio uh, area uh, with South Tyrone uh, and, and also Italy, then the, the Trentino, um, we always got a wild card for that race. Uh, and and basically, this is the the a great opportunity to ra- to race against uh, Th- Thomas Cher and Bernal, uh, Thibaut Pinot, and and all those world stars. And for the for the guys, it's it's like a great experience from from a racing uh, opportunity, but also for us, it was a great experience for a performance opportunity to to look okay what is really required in a race. Um, and 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 basically the the approach was uh, we we had a cooperation uh, research cooperation with Androni, the the, the pro continental team from Italy uh, with Andrea Giorgi as the head of performance and Dan Laurent with Borahans Grohe, and basically those we, we we got we got data from from both teams and we have our under twenty three data, and what we were looking at is just like initially we looked at the power profile. Uh, over over multiple duration from f- five seconds to thirty minutes, and interestingly, we we didn't find any change or any difference in the absolute power profile. Then we found some variation, of course, in the relative power profile uh, due to that the riders selected for the world tour teams just had more a climbing specific nature in terms of their anthropomorphic uh, anthropomorphic characteristics, and our energy cyclists were just. Could be classified as just all around us from their from their uh, anthropometrics, but interestingly, then there was an an article from Nate Wilson, I think two years before, where he uh, showed that 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 involvement evol- uh, of Jan pa- uh, Will Parder with um, uh, I think it at that time to when where he went to CCC uh, about the kilojoule approach and what they did in in terms of their efforts after uh, predefined amounts. And we were really interested in it because we know coaches are working with this approach, and but it has never been administered to a research design. So we were basically quantifying the work from 1,000 kilojoule onwards um, up to 3,000 kilojoule where the, uh, and it looks, we're looking at the change in the power profile as the kilojoule were accumulated. And, and then this basically was a memory effect for us. Wow, there is a lot of dynamic change. And this is what we saw that 
uh, under 20 cyclists started fatiguing quite early after 2,500 kilojoule drop in their power profile, whereas uh, professional riders can maintain it throughout 2,500 kilojoule. So that was the first approach. And in the second approach, we even did subdivisions of, of this group into based on their anthropometrics, into all-rounders, domestiques, and, and, and GC contenders. Basically, from an anthropometric perspective, the domestiques and the GC contenders did not differ. We just then added basically um, who had a supportive role and who had basically the key role. And this is why we used the top 10 for the GC contenders and outside the top 10, these were the domestiques. And interestingly, even within professional cyclists, we see quite big discrepancies in, in the fatigue resistance of different rider types. Of course, there is a lot of other factors playing in race dynamics, team tactics, race strategy, day-to-day variation. We are all aware of that limitation. So it's not about that, okay, this study was 100% controlled. It was not controlled at all. It was just observational. But I think the power of what you get out just from observational study showing this was quite impressive to us. And I think, yeah, the, the interest from the scientific community was, was, also, was also quite big. We had... Um, yeah, a lot of interest in, in that project because I think it was never or before uh, it was never really attempted. And interestingly, at the same time, uh, another group with Turn, uh, Deyo, and Lo, uh, Deyo Sanders and, and Rob Lampert did a similar paper uh, with a, a kilojoule approach, a similar kilojoule approach with, with race points, basically coming out to the same conclusion. And Honestly, in, in research, you don't can have it better. Like two independent groups showing basically the same results. And, and that was quite, of course, um, strengthening our results, but also their findings. And I think now we, are, uh, we opened the door for something new uh, and we try to fill that gap now with, uh, yeah, James Black's PhD and, and all this kind of uh, future projects that are ahead of us. Yeah, yeah. No, that's really interesting. Do, do you remember off the top of your head, or do you have the numbers in front of you? How how much did the under twenty threes drop in their power profile uh, in percentage or in watts or watts per kg compared yeah, yeah. to the so the seniors? What, what what we basically compared was um, how was the power profile after pre accumulated workloads um, comparative to race performance, and race performance was quantified as the UCI points scored or the percentage time difference to the overall winner. So that was our classification of race performance. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, in order to be able to hit UCI points from an under 23 level or general level, you need 5.3 watts per kilo after 2,000 kilojoule over 20 minutes or longer. Mm -hmm. And that was quite an impressive marker because... I didn't know this, but when I presented these results this year in the Science and Cycling Conference in Leuven, there was Samuel Makora sitting in the audience and he was smiling after, the, after my talk. And he, then he, uh, he raised his arm and said, you know what, Peter, we found this out in Alberti, Alberto Sassi's lab in 2005 at Mabey. And we came to the same conclusion, but we never published the results. But you know that. And, and that for me, that was quite a, an interesting uh, memory effect. I said, wow, it's great that, that even though we have different approaches, different methodologies, different populations, the findings are quite robust. And more interestingly, we also found, especially for the, for the GC contenders who wanted to go for a stage win, 
or want to stay affiliated to the top UCI points and the minimum time difference to the winner, you need on average 5.2, 5.8 watts per kilo on the average climb in that race. And previously, this was exactly found by Tom Dumoulin's uh, uh, case single study from Ten Van Erp, hmm. where he also concluded during his three-week uh, Grand Tour, he needed 5.8 watts per kilo for 20 minutes and longer after 2,500 kilojoules. So I think that's that was really something interesting for us where he said, okay, although we had quite different interests and also started differently from the approach, that results remain quite solid and 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 yeah and, and quite um, transparent. Yeah, and and what what do you think for in terms of developing that fatigue resistance? <laughs> what are the key things that an athlete needs to do to to do that? What 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 are the steps that people can take if they want to work on their fatigue resistance? <laughs> At the moment, we have a problem. We we can classify who is fatigue resistant or not but we don't know really what are the triggers. So it's not like um, in terms of uh, polarized training or high-intensity training, you need that amount of high-intensity training and that amount of low-intensity training. We are not yet at that level to explain it or to be able to explain it. So, of course, we are interested in, okay, what are the underlying mechanisms? Is it, for example, is it just happening out of an, an integrative approach where I just say, okay, this is what it is at the end, but there are multiple factors contributing into it. For sure, it's a there is a there is a training aspect in there. Uh, for sure, there is a nutritional and and also how how um, how you can uh, use your glycogen stores, glycogen re- replenishment, um, and also I think yeah. But it's 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 I would even I would even speculate it's a very integrative approach. You won't find that that key marker of okay with this someone is getting fatigue resistance and with this someone is not. I think. That, that would be too simple because it's such a complex phenomenon where you just have to be aware that what you are observing here can be a product of many, many things. And honestly, the big, if you really want to be um, very critical about this work, there is one very big limitation, what you can just not play down. And it's the thing of the influence of race tactics. So the real question is, as we had no access to, we could not measure like that during the race. So, or even um, um, oxygen equivalence, whatever. So perception of effort or whatever. The problem was that we don't know, was the decline in power output due to team tactics because his job was done? Or was it due to, because he was over the limit? So that. You know that that is kind of that is for sure some kind of discussion. What what needs to be what needs to be said, um, because when you look at the race, it's just like or when you look at at at, at Tour de France races when domestics all of a sudden just leave and and, and basically go, drop. Do they it by do they do they it cautiously or do it just can they do anymore? Um, and and I think that's that's one aspect. What yeah. What we what we try to answer more in in a formal way, um, and this is where now our research interest is going for the future. Mm, yeah, I, I think there can probably be uh, several uh, several PhD uh, studies on on the topic of fatigue resistance alone. That's a really fascinating topic, and I'm also waiting for somebody to do something in in Ironman racing. Yeah, in triathlon, I would even say yeah, yeah. in triathlon, I would love to do it. Because fatigue resistance in Ironman is like the, I would even say the the number one metric to to choose. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's uh, it's fascinating. Um, wh- one question here that I n- noted is that uh, when you looked at the training characteristics uh, over the year for the under 23s, then uh, I think you noted that the training volume and intensity was was lower in the late season than it was in the in mid season and and early season. And we're talking here about the the racing part of the season. Uh, so, uh, w- what do you think? that is the re- the reason for that is is it that they had accumulated too much fatigue or uh for some reason due to racing or or is it something else what well, what do you think the reason is and do you think there's something that can that could maybe be be done to to change that to to be able to yeah. maintain a bit more consistency um <laughs> When we did the study and when we found this out, this was basically also retrospectively analyzed. So the season was, of course, it was not that we prospectively want to, to manipulate these things. There was no manipulation on training at all from our, from our design. So basically what we say, okay, we did some kind of standardized testing, some kind of standardized efforts and so on. Of course, there was standardization in, in the design behind, but we always said, it should not influence the training outcome of the athletes because we want really we, we want to initially use it as a learning effect for us to know how can we do better. And and for sure, the things what are happening at the end of the season are twofold. I think there is a strategic uh, component, which is just say, okay, this is how a season flows uh, with the dynamics of the racing, race days and so on. But also, I think there is a subjective component of the athlete and coach relationship where they just might target or might rethink their seasonal buildup that they don't need to rush to be in top shape in April, that they say, okay, let's, let's just gradually build through into the season. And we had this year a quite a great example of, of how it can be realized. It was Georg Steinhauser, who is now going to education first. He had a very gradual buildup and he was speaking by through the Lavinier. And also thereafter, having a, having his best has, best seasonal period ever. So we we basically learning from our uh, from this aspect um, on a, on a day to day basis, and also on an athlete to athlete approach. At that time, we didn't know, but we tried to reinforce this better uh, in order to make less mistakes, also from the coaching side. Yeah, no, I I think it kind of aligns very well with the previous point already but but i think this is something that i also see see quite a bit in athletes that maybe just pacing your season a bit better in terms of both training and racing is a mistake that a lot of us make uh just being a being a bit or ambitious maybe in the early parts of the season and and then that costing us later not just in terms of races and performances but also just in the ability to to train as much or as intensely as we we did early on so so i think that was an interesting point that uh that you brought up there uh now just a couple of general questions uh so first uh, can you give three pieces of advice about anything related to endurance sports uh for rela- re- for amateur uh, triathletes or cyclists or endurance athletes that want mm-hmm. to improve their performance yeah i think it comes down to the simple principles of training well training good, uh, recover well, eat well, sleep well. I think it's just very simple. I think it's very simple in endurance type of um, sports. Just follow the basics, right? And that's the most difficult thing to do because what you observed is that athletes, not only age group athletes, but also we see this in, in pro athletes, pro cyclists as well. They, they are so obsessed with all these new kind of technological measurements 
uh, with HRV, with with all those trackers and so on, and and they just loosening the head of the, of themselves, and and that's that's one problem where they just I think subconsciously cannot re- recover adequately as they should. There is a lot of influence also from social media, Instagram, and so on, because they need to look good on a training ride. They need to take photos on a training ride. They need to tell how much they are training every day. So there is a lot of influence what really keeps you from training well. And I think uh, basically going back to the roots and say, okay, what do I really need for the training is quite simple and can be done quite straightforward. And I think reframing this from an athlete side, but also as a coach side and stressing this day on a day-to-day basis, I think that's the key to go. And, 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 and then I think there, is, there are no secrets. Yeah, I love it. Getting the basics right. It, it reminds me of something I saw on Twitter yesterday. Somebody posted uh, uh, a page from a book and it's a page with the headline, How to be more impressive. And and it says, suppose we want to publish something that is as simple as one plus one equals two. Then there's a whole bunch of math. And at the, the last line of the page, we see something like ln of the limit from said to infinity of one plus I won't go on and read everything, <laughs> but it's basically a long, long line of math that also means one plus one equals two. And uh, for most, it's just pure jibber jabber and doesn't mean anything. <laughs> but but I, th- I think that I was thinking about training when I when I saw that post and uh, yeah, like getting the basics right. That's that's what it's about. And and making things overly complex doesn't really one plus one is still too even if you write it in a way that looks incredibly impressive so so i think that that's something that um yeah that, yes, that, absolutely that I really, and i think really agree with. i think that's a problem also what we have a bit in sports science even a lot of coaches and scientists they they, they want to sound exclusively knowledgeable exclusively intelligent and they just forget to keep things simple you know and simplify also the the, the, the language you are using with athletes don't overcomplicate things don't uh explain them underlying physiology if they are not interested you know there's no point to always boost your knowledge uh, on on public places so i think be a bit more conservative about this and and just acknowledge the beauty of of training and having fun yeah and of course it's not easy to to get the basics right it's very difficult to to get the right balance of of training load and and recovery so so that's not to say that it's very easy or anything it is difficult but but it's uh, it's it's just more simple than we sometimes make it make it be um and then what's one thing that you're currently learning about or studying or fascinated by and why I would say I'm I'm learning the whole time. <laughs> it's basically it's 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 you 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 never stop you you should never stop learning. Or that's my credo. It's 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 um it's really something I'm I'm into it. Um, yeah, uh, there is hardly a day where where um, I'm not interested in any new aspects of of sports science. Uh, definitely, but I I try to reframe it better, and I try to use it now with a bit of also. Um, uh, giving myself time to absorb. Uh, I did. I didn't do this quite well in the past, um, but now I realized. Um, yeah, it's better to spend uh, a morning ski touring with James, for example, in order to uh, yeah reflect a bit about the work, about what we are doing, rather than stucking in the office and, and try to desperately write on something where you just have, don't make any progress. So having that life balance, um, yeah, back to it 
is quite was quite an important change for me, and uh, this is something what I really now uh, yeah enjoy. Okay, so so your answer about what you're learning about would be really the kind of work life balance is is that it? That's that's exactly the the bottom. Line. Okay, perfect. And uh, now finally, let's uh, take the rapid fire questions. So take just one sentence to answer these. And the first one is: What's your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports or science? I have to mention I have to mention John A. Hawley and Louisa Burke Peak Performance because they dedicated such a nice letter to me when I finished my PhD. They are very great friends with Inigo, and uh, he they surprised me with a personal written letter and the book. And that was something very impressive for, uh, for me, and that has now a big, uh, yeah, it's it's now a big picture in my office. So it's big yeah. performance by Louisa Burke and John A. Hawley. Perfect. And uh, what's an important habit that you've benefited from, athletically, professionally, or personally? It's definitely team spirit. It's uh, the, I would even say, the embrace of the suck sometimes, because this is where where you learn. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think being humble, being, uh, being appreciative and, 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 uh, yeah, just enjoy what you are doing. Yeah. And finally, who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? Uh, it's my grandpa because, um, I finally managed to live in the same house than him. I got a, fl- an, a new apartment renovated there uh, and he's 85. He's still doing his morning gymnastics every day, 20 pull-ups. Uh, he's super fit. He's still skiing. Uh, and he is a really, really, uh, yeah, idol to my uh, self. That is incredibly impressive. 20 pull-ups at 85. Uh, wow, that, that, that is some going. <laughs> uh, and finally, uh, Peter, where can listeners find, find, find about more about you and uh, follow you on social media, ResearchGate and places like that? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm on ResearchGate as well. I'm on Twitter. But uh, yeah, more recently, I also uh, created a, a company alongside Dan Lerang and, and James Reg. It's called Intercept, which is basically um, a platform for sports science support uh, regarding teams, federations, or individual athletes. Okay, cool. I didn't know that, but I'll put a link to that in the in the show notes as well. Uh, so great. Um, and thank you so much. Uh, it's been great to hear more about your work and the really impressive work. Congratulations on getting that PhD finalized as well. Uh, and uh, good luck for well the future of your career. Thank you very much for the opportunity uh, being in the podcast. And uh, I'm a great consumer of your work and keep it going. Thanks. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com. We will have plenty of links to Peter's uh, Twitter and ResearchGate, as well as all of the studies included in his PhD and the PhD thesis itself. Uh, We will also have uh, links to All Out Physiology, which is a YouTube channel by Dr. Mark Burnley we mentioned, and a blog post on exercise intensity domains and phase transitions which is the the blog post by dr mark burnley we talked about Uh, also i have linked to the tools and calculators that uh, felipe mattioni have has developed and i look forward to checking them out myself i haven't done so yet at the moment of recording this and we mentioned a number of names that of guests that have appeared in the past on the podcast. Uh, so I have tried to link to as many of them as possible in the show notes. I won't uh, name anybody, but there's uh, a ton of them in the show notes and episode description links. 
If you need any help with your training to take your endurance performance to the next level, then consider getting a scientific triathlon training plan or get started with one of our coaches. Uh, we are very confident in the quality of our services. We have helped a large number of athletes improve in significantly and hope that we can do that for you as well. Next Monday, uh, we will have another episode, of course, and I have done several great interviews over the last couple of weeks by the time of recording this, but I haven't really decided which one to schedule next, so you'll have to wait and see. But stay subscribed to the podcast, of course, and you will see that on Monday when it is released. Big thanks, finally, to our sponsors, Roka, that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses, and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. And thank you to Senate. Use the Senate swim trainer to improve your technique, power, and stamina, and increase your consistency of swim training, even when you don't have time to go to the pool. Get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on senatesuntrainer.com forward slash TTS. And remember that it's a risk-free investment. You can get a full refund if you don't love the, tra the trainer after two weeks. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.